I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Porphyria is a rare and intensely painful blood disease because it can manifest itself with symptoms similar to those caused by far more common disorders. It can be difficult to diagnose. Colin McEwen went through an 18-year diagnostic odyssey in part because injuries he suffered as a child from an auto accident obscured from doctors the actual cause of his maladies. His problems were made that much more difficult as his search for relief from the pain from the disease led doctors to dismiss him as a drug seeker. We spoke to McEwen about porphyria, the experiences he went through to get a diagnosis, and how having a diagnosis has changed his ability to manage the disease. Colin, thanks for joining us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. We're going to discuss your story today, a, a painful odyssey, and, and how you were eventually, after many twists and turns, diagnosed with a, a rare disease called porphyria. What is porphyria? Uh, porphyria is a, uh, it's a, it's a malfunction in your body's ability to produce heme, which is uh, the main component of hemoglobin, which is the main component of uh, your red blood cells. And this is and what it, carries oxygen? Yes, yes, throughout the body. And it, and uh, from what I understand, uh, it's the, the, the process of producing heme is a somewhat of a toxic process, meaning uh, some of the substances used to make heme are actually neurotoxins. Um, so when those build up and spill out into the wrong areas, uh, they tend to affect uh, the nerves of, of all different types throughout your body. So uh, it can cause a lot of pain, uh, paralysis, uh, dementia, or, or uh, and those sorts of issues. Porphyria can be difficult to diagnose because many of its symptoms can result from far more common ailments. In your case, this was made worse by a, a traumatic event you experienced as a child that doctors would later point to when the disease began to manifest itself. What happened when you were 10? Uh, when I was 10 years old, I was uh, visiting my grandparents, and my grandfather and I just hopped in the car to go grab a pizza, and we were uh, struck head-on by a uh, Camaro going about 50 miles an hour. And um, so I had a lot of injuries in my abdominal area and also had uh, head trauma from uh, breaking out the windshield in the passenger side window. And uh, so they had to have do emergency surgery on my abdominal area, and I was hospitalized for eight days. But uh, luckily, I, uh, in about a couple months, bounced back and was able to have a pretty normal life as a kid. At the age of 19, you suffered seizures while at boot camp in the Army. What, what happened then? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's kind of a weird experience to have a seizure for the first time. <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, you know, right after you have seizures, they want to figure out why they're, they're happening. Uh, so they did all the normal CT scans and MRIs and EEGs and, and those sorts of things, and everything came back normal. Um, so the doctors... Uh, concluded at that time that it was probably from the car wreck um, and that they see seizure disorders develop from childhood head traumas, usually at the end of puberty. 
Well, this ended your time in the army, but but what happened with regards to the seizures? Uh, I ended up having about five within um, six months until we finally got on a medication. Um, I was actually put on Lamictal, and I was on that for several years, up until about th- uh, three years ago, actually. So, And they were pretty well controlled. I had uh, one seizure out of nowhere back in 2012, um, but other than that, um, that, was, that was pretty much the history of my seizures. <laughs> Well, you you entered the working world. You were doing communications for a nonprofit. You fell in love and and got engaged. But then you suffered from mono and and complications that followed. What happened at that point? Well, I I experienced extraordinarily bad uh, abdominal pain. Uh, Never experienced anything like that before. Um, and when I went to the emergency room and they did all the normal tests, of course, they think, you know, appendicitis, uh, gallbladder, those sorts of things. And, um, it came back, everything came back normal, except I did test positive for mono. Um, and, uh, so they thought that that was a kind of contributing factor. And then again, they looked at the car wreck and, and the scar tissue that I had, and they thought that, Possibly the mono caused some um, exacerbations and the abdominal adhesions caused the pain and, and constipation and those sorts of things. Pain became a, a very real issue for you. What kind of pain were you dealing with and to what ends did you go to find relief? It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, very sharp burning pain. Um, it's very diffuse in the abdominal area. Uh, the type that just has you doubled over, uh, you can't get comfortable. It's, it's unrelenting. Um, and, and of course, really the only thing that was relieving it was opioid medication. Um, and so, you know, of course, at the ER, they, uh, they give you the uh, much stronger medications. Um, but then when I was, uh, released and at home, I was usually taking, um, like hydrocodone and those sorts of things to help alleviate the pain. At this point, I take it you weren't so concerned about getting a diagnosis for your, your problems, but really relieving pain. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I was thinking exactly what the doctors were telling me, that everything was normal, uh, that this was just scar tissue that was built up. It's just something that's going to hurt. There's nothing we can really do about it. Um, so, you know, I just trying to live my life the best I could. And um, at that point, with the, what helped me get through the day was to take pain medicine. And there, there was one other component I didn't quite understand, which was that your your diet morning, noon, and night had completely become cereal. Is that right? Yeah. Why, yeah. why, why was that? Uh, that was just uh, my own logic of I've got to keep things moving. So uh, what is tasty and uh, has a lot of fiber, and that's uh, cereal. So, th- so. This, is, this is to deal with opioid complications, I guess. That's right. That's okay. Right. <laughs> I'm glad it straightened that one out. So yeah. so in November 2013, there was a, a, a very serious episode. Your family uh, was concerned that prescription drug abuse was causing a mental breakdown. What happened at that point? I, it, it started with just uh, insomnia. Uh, you know, I wasn't able to sleep one night, and then it went on to another night. And, you know, about the third night, I just really started kind of getting a little more separated from reality. 
Um, and I was also experiencing a lot of anxiety. And of course, you know, you kind of get those, uh, the sleep deprivation type of hallucinations. And just the longer that went on, uh, the more crazier I, I seemed. Um, you know, and I was somewhat private with, a, with, the pain that I was experiencing in my abdomen, um, including uh, not really keeping my wife in the loop uh, with that. Uh, so she was surprised, caught off guard with the, the, the amount of pain medication I had been taking and uh, concluded, well, you know, he's been taking a lot of pain medication. He's acting completely not himself. Uh, so this must be a drug problem. And you were treated eventually with a drug that addressed pain and addiction, but when you're off this patch, you began to suffer pain and tremors again. You began to self-medicate with alcohol and then suffered from paralysis. Did you have any trouble getting doctors to take you seriously, or were you viewed as a drug addict faking systems to, to seek drugs? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, that, that is the label that, I mean, it might as well be a tattoo. Um, because you know, especially in a uh, you know smaller city like Oklahoma City, there's only so many emergency rooms and so many doctors that staff those emergency rooms, and they've all seen you before, and they know that you're you don't test positive for anything, and and they just know that you're asking for pain medicine, and they can look you up and see how much pain medicine you've been taking. Uh, so yeah, I mean, eventually uh, nobody. They just assume that you are there for the drugs and and that the addiction is the real illness. What, what is it like to be in excruciating pain from a real medical ailment and not to have doctors take that seriously? Uh, <laughs> discombobulating um, <laughs> because you almost begin to think that you are crazy, uh, that it is in your head. Um, and... You know, at that point, there was so much desperation going on within myself that I was willing to believe that, that, um, that I didn't believe what my body was telling me, uh, that it, that it was just something made up and maybe that there was some deep seated trauma that needed to be addressed. And, you know, I was just so willing to, to try anything, whether that was going to counseling or going to NA meetings or going to AA meetings, um, you know, to figure out what it is to make myself better. You were actually misdiagnosed around that time with chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy and, and treated with intravenous immoglobulin. Did, did that help? Um, actually, it did, and um, I, or it appeared to. And um, what we later this found was out a, this is, was a neurological disorder they thought you had. Yes, yes, and uh, they did uh, an EMG test, um, so they could actually tell that there was uh, the blockage in the nerves, uh, that there was something actually going on that was causing the uh, the paralysis, and neuropathy, and the tremors. And, um, you know, for, of course, they threw out the term ALS at first, and that is, is a very sobering moment in and of itself. Um, but when I did respond to the IVIG, they were able to take that off the table. Um, and though I showed a lot of characteristics of the chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, um, I also did show some characteristics of multifocal motor neuropathy. Uh, so the doctor was kind of debating which one of those two it might be, uh, even though, but IVIG treatment is, is the same for either one of those diseases. Um, 
So we uh, just proceeded uh, to treat that. Um, and, you know, I was still experiencing a lot of pain, um, but the doctor would say, well, you know, pain is not a part of CIDP, so I don't understand why you're in pain. And again, that accusation of being a, a, a drug seeker comes back into play. So, well, in, in the summer of 2015, you had a relapse. The, the immunoglobulin wasn't working. Paralysis returned. Finally, doctors were able to get you to seen at the Mayo Clinic some 18 years after your first seizure, you, you finally had a, a diagnosis of acute intermittent porphyria, essentially made through a, a urine test, if I understood correctly. How has that diagnosis changed your life, knowing what you have, how, how well you're able, how well are you able to, to manage the disease now with that knowledge? Uh, it was probably one of the most fantastic, I told you so, moments of my whole life. <laughs> um, my, uh, you know, I did feel very vindicated uh, that it wasn't uh, just a, a you know a mental problem. A, I was or I wasn't a hypochondriac. I wasn't a drug seeker. That there was something really wrong with me. Um, but more than that, it was to when you can finally identify what it is that you're fighting. Um, you know that makes everything else fall into line. Uh, you know you can put together a care plan. You can uh, put together your plan of action. What you're going to do to get better. Um, you know, it's kind of like at the end of a mystery movie when you finally find out who the bad guy is and you're like, ah, that's that's the guy that we don't trust, you know, or, or should go after. So um, it was just it, it was a, a wonderful moment, um, but also a little little scary because it is a disease that I had never heard of before. Um, and so to, to to try to learn about what the prognosis is, what treatments are available, um, you know, after the the excitement had died down, it was like, OK, let's roll up our sleeves and let's get to work. And how well are you able to manage the disease today? Um, I would say fair. Um, there's only one treatment available, um, and it's called panhematin. And it's a very old drug. Um, I, you know, I, I put it in terms like this, that this drug was first on the market before the first space shuttle left Earth. And it does not prevent attacks. It's only used to treat attacks when they're happening um and so it, it doesn't really uh, uh, you can't really uh, get your life back on regular track because you still have that unpredictability of the attacks and when they'll come on and so you're also inherently going to be on more pain medication as well because you as the because you don't really know until the pain starts that you need the pain um it can also be managed with uh, um, uh, uh, D5 or D10, uh, basically dextrose in water, um, will help flush out the toxins, which is why I showed some improvement with the IVIG because it was mixed with a dextrose. Huh. So, <laughs> so um, but, you know, this being Porphyria Awareness Week, uh, we're really wanting to put a lot of focus and attention on getting better treatments, you know, a 21st century treatment to treat this disease, um, one of the most painful diseases known to mankind. And there are thousands of people that suffer every day from this disease that would give just about anything for a treatment that, uh, that can equal the disease. And how hopeful are you of, of seeing that anytime soon? Uh, I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Uh, there is a, a, a drug that is going through trials right now. 
Um, I know that the data is limited, um, but the data that we've seen is very promising. Um, it is a preventative medication. Um, so it will, you know, allow people to get back to living a normal life. Um, you know, one of the hard things about this disease is, is being on disability and not being able to work. And a lot of that is the unpredictability. Um, I can't tell you how many vacations we've had to cancel or plans, um, date nights, those sorts of things. Uh, so the prospect of, of a drug that could be on the market in the next couple of years that takes that unpredictability out of the equation and really gives somebody their life back is just very exciting. Well, we should mention your wife, who's not only been a, a source of support, but was there for you through some very difficult times when you may not have been in a position to be much of a partner. What role has she played for you? You know, I am, I, I married up. <laughs> she is an incredible woman. Uh, she has been a support rock for me, um, but she's also been a, you know, a check on things. She tells me when to to suck it up and to, to when I, you know, no time to, to cry over spilled milk, um, you know, and she's never left my side. Um, you know, when I, the, when the, the drug addiction thing came up, uh, you know, we were just married a couple of years. We didn't have any kids or anything like that. She had a great career. She could easily just pack her bags and laugh at that point. Um, but she didn't. And she stuck with me. And if anybody, there were so many times when I had nobody to advocate for me, she was there and she was my advocate. Um, and she was the one yelling at doctors saying, how can you guys say that there's nothing wrong with him? Look at him. I know him. I live with him. Um, and I just, I, I have no idea where I'd be without her. Your, your growing health problems did cost your job, but you, you become a furniture maker these days and, and working for yourself. Uh, online people can find you at Dead Hands OKC, but what's that been like? Uh, it's it's been great. Um, you know, it really kind of came out of boredom um, when I uh, just a, a few months after um, losing my job because of the paralysis, and I was trying to stay mobile and stay busy. Um, I just kind of started refurbishing an old coffee table. And um, I just enjoyed the work. It um, it challenged me, uh, to, you know, physically to, to keep moving, keep my hands moving, but it also challenged me mentally because it's something I hadn't really done before, didn't have any experience doing, um, and I could do it at my own pace. Uh, so, it, you know, and it's just really kind of taken off, and it's become, you know, a little bit of an of art expression. Um, you know, people say, well, it's that's bad looking furniture. I say, well, it's art. You know, if they say, well, that's bad art, I say, well, it's furniture. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, a, it's been a, a, an amazing outlet for me. And, and I credit it for helping me regain back a lot of what I have lost. I still do have some paralysis uh, in my thumbs and uh, my hands. But uh, that is, uh, you know, I, I think the staying busy and, and doing that furniture has been good for both my mental recovery from this whole Odyssey, and also my physical recovery. Colin McEwen, Porphyria Patient Advocate. Colin, thanks so much for sharing your story today. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. 
You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.